Welcome to Real Britain, the podcast of my show on GB News. I'm Darren Grimes and you can catch me live every Saturday and Sunday afternoon from 2 till 3. But don't worry, if you miss it, you can catch up with the best bits here every week. So here we go. Let's talk about the issues that matter to you in Great Britain. Folks, we in Britain had the first COVID vaccine, the fastest rollout in Europe, the speediest booster programme. We're all fizzing now with antibodies. We were the first out of lockdown. We shook off the shackles of COVID restrictions. And to me, it was very much a success story that we ought to feel proud of now. And I wonder how many over the next few years, though, once we've gone through this hellish episode of economic turmoil and the pain that it's causing to our healthcare service and all the rest of it, the backlogs, the A&E backlogs, the mental health backlogs, how many of us really are going to claim that we didn't support the second or third lockdown over the next few years? And that actually, whilst we understood the first lockdown to try and figure out what this virus actually was, how many of us are going to conclude that it wasn't proportionate to go ahead with these further iterations that have caused us all the pain that we're experiencing right now. A young lad in the BBC Question Time audience this week was brave enough to ask similar questions this week. Have a watch at how the audience and the politicians laugh and sneer. I think what it shows that by Boris Johnson breaking the rules was that they were absurd in the first place and that we should never have gone into lockdown. And that was, it was the biggest the mistake, I think, that the government has made. But, folks, just see how quickly their laughter and their eye-rolling falls flat as this Jamie unwraps his anti-lockdown argument. We now have children who have to catch up on their lost learning and we have uh, NHS backlogs of over six million people and, and we have cancer patients who can't get seen, who died during lockdown. No one talks about that. Why are we not talking about the collateral damage from two years of lockdowns which have destroyed the economy and which have caused the cost of living crisis that's happened today? Very well said, if you ask me. And, folks, my first question here is how on earth did someone with a considered opinion that goes against the establishment grain manage to slip through the BBC censors? I wonder how fast BBC Question Time will reprimand whoever allowed this incorrect set of views to be broadcast to the dwindling numbers that actually watch Question Time anymore. Personally, I'd sooner watch Paint Dry. I mean, how dare anyone suggest that maybe, folks, just maybe, it's the lockdown strategy, the turning off and on of the economy more times than Del Boy's dodgy three-wheeler. Perhaps that's what's responsible for the inflationary debt spiral that our economy is currently experiencing, as well as all of the aforementioned healthcare tribulations and the generation of school children well and truly thrown under the lockdown bus. I wonder if we'd have made the same decisions over recent years if we'd allowed opinions like this young lad's to be heard in public and governmental debate. Rather than be surprised and consider it brave when someone is able to air those views on our so-called national broadcaster. How fast the shock dissipates. How fast the pearl clutching stops as these politicians are reminded of the consequences 
of what they actually voted for time and again. I say good for Jamie, for how many it has felt like such a lonely work, actually, in opposing these lockdowns. And I really, really do. I go back to that point I mentioned earlier. I reckon the day's going to come when almost no-one will admit to having endorsed these lockdown rules, some of the more mental restrictions for a virus that primarily affects the vulnerable and the elderly. Elon Musk's purchase of Twitter, I think, is an important reminder that we need to keep the public square open so that opinions like James's are given, Jamie's even, are given a platform too. We all too easily shook off the civil liberties that our ancestors helped us curate, nurture and fiercely defend. So this lad is right to remind her of the consequences of so easily abandoning those very values. Now, folks, the billionaire Elon Musk has taken over Twitter this week. There have long been arguments about whether Twitter should be an open platform, a place for free speech. But many think that this has actually led to the spread of misinformation, disinformation and increasing hate speech. A wild west for all of these things. Elon Musk himself is a big advocate of free speech. So in the cultural debate today, I'm asking, how free should free speech be online? I'm delighted to say I'm joined by Carolyn Silly, a legal officer at the Free Speech Union, a fantastic union, and Khalid Mahmood, Labour MP for Birmingham Perry Bar. Carolyn, from the Free Speech Union here, I wonder, I assume, I'm assuming here, I don't want to put words into your mouth, that you were pretty delighted with Elon Musk's takeover. Hi, Darren. Yes, um, the Free Speech Union and I myself, we were very delighted um, with Elon Musk's uh, free speech positive um, attitude. Uh, but at the same time, we are under no illusion that this will somehow cure the state of uh, free speech online uh, in the long term. You say to those that Twitter is now going to become a safe haven for disinformation, for extremism of, of all stripes, and that actually Elon Musk's takeover is going to exacerbate the problems that we see online today. Well, I think that um, free speech is extremely important for democracy and extremely important for societal progress. And because the public square has now effectively moved online, we need to extend free speech protections uh, online. And the type of free speech that Elon Musk wants to bring back to Twitter is lawful free speech not just and it's not just anything goes um even in real life we have limitations to what we can and cannot say and that should be extended to the online sphere but as i said there are limitations to that yeah carolyn one thing that i've noticed over the recent debate around the government's online safety bill is this duty on social media companies to limit legal but harmful speech. Are you worried about the definition of legal but harmful speech when it comes to a platform like Twitter? Ultimately, can Elon Musk really have Twitter be a free speech haven here in Britain under this law? 
Yeah, that's a really good question, Darren. And I, the Free Speech Union is very concerned about this uh, legal but harmful um, concept in general. Um, I think it's very important that we have much more robust uh, protections of free speech for the online sphere. The issue nowadays is that um, social media platforms like Twitter uh, have so much power in controlling our speech but we don't have enough uh, protections against that. So what we really need is uh, a principled set, uh, you know, a type of charter, like we have, uh, you know, human rights that protect us against uh, government interference of our free speech rights. We need that to also apply to social media platforms, um, which is not the case at the moment because they are private entities. This would protect us more in the long run against uh, anyone that might buy Twitter and try to put their own uh, ideological perspectives on us. Khalid, thank you for joining us today. Can I just ask you, Khalid, do you fear Elon Musk's takeover of Twitter? Do you disagree with the likes of the Free Speech Union that actually this is a, a good thing and it's laudable to be such a robust defender of freedom of speech? Well, I think it's important that we have freedom of speech. I think it's uh, important <clears throat> that we protect people uh, that could be bullied, people that could be uh, mentally distressed uh, by some of the stuff that's going on. Uh, and I think it's important that we regulate uh, a lot of fake media that's putting on uh, and causing huge amount of harm uh, across the young people. So I think as far as I'm concerned, there should be real checks and balances against that. Uh, and we can't just have uh, freedom for all, because uh, it's just not the way things work. There are a huge amount of anonymous accounts uh, who create huge amounts of problems for people without actually coming forward. If somebody wants to come forward and say what they want to say and to be recognized for that, then that's fine. So at least you can see who the person is. And if somebody wishes to take action against that individual, they're perfectly entitled to do so. So, Khalid, would you ban, would you like to see Elon Musk ban anonymous accounts on these platforms, on Twitter? I think in the experience that I've had as Member of Parliament, I think all the people that have suffered, uh, apart from myself, my constituents that have suffered because of, uh, of these uh, anonymous accounts, I think they have to either register themselves uh, before they put up whatever the, uh, alias they want to put up, but they should uh, be banned in that respect. Carolyn, then, what, what would you say to that? This is a Member of Parliament here, speaking of the way in which he and his colleagues use, are used to receiving verbal abuse online, that might well be from some of these anonymous accounts, is enough actually being done to tackle it? Is this not a problem? Is this not what we're all warned about as far as the parameters of free speech are concerned? Well, I would, I would say that, um, you know, free speech plays a really important role also in preventing violence. We need to have an open dialogue and open discussion from all perspectives in order to uh, find solutions and so that we don't push other people into extremism, which then often turns into actual physical violence. And I would say that we have already quite robust uh, protections against uh, serious harassment, um, offline at least, and perhaps online, it would be worth um, ensuring that we are protected in that way online as well. But um, one wouldn't but, personally ban the use of anonymous being anonymized online. I 
I think that we need to be very careful with um, banning the use of anonymous accounts online because it is anonymous accounts can also be of vital vital importance to people so that they do feel free to express controversial opinions. Khalid, what would you say to that then, if you want to come back on that? Because there would be a concern that whistleblowers and things like this, it might be difficult for people to actually announce who they are online because they fear retribution from God only knows who. No, but there, there are laws in, in terms of whistleblowing. You can do that quite effectively and quite easily uh, through the laws that are there. We operate uh, 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 sort of free speech in terms of, of the issues that we support in terms of anti-Semitism, in terms of gender equality, in terms of racial equality. So all those things are at the moment currently covered uh, by regulation. So you can't go out uh, and have an absolute free speech. There's no such thing uh, at the moment as absolute free speech. Uh, I think when people hide behind a pseudonym or, or try to uh, violate other people's uh, privacy just to abuse them, uh, and the way it's been. Diane Abbott, uh, of all the people, has had a tremendous amount of abuse uh, throughout this. Uh, and I know the effect it's had on some people uh, who are in Parliament, but also my constituents who have come to me, who have been abused in this way, where they feel that there's absolutely no recourse for them to actually try and set the record right uh, or to see who the person is and how they can challenge that person properly without yeah. going in, into a dialogue and, and make them accountable. So, Khalid, then, just, we're just coming to the end of our discussion. You don't accept that Elon Musk is going to widen, broaden the public square so actually democracy can thrive through further discussion and debate? Democracy doesn't thrive through, through abuse. Democracy doesn't th uh, thrive through bullying of people. Uh, and that's what we've got to be careful for. I think what we're going to do is, if you have a proper democracy, you're going to have proper discussions in order to move the thing for uh, the issue forward and discuss properly and openly and be accountable for what you want to say in a democracy. That's what democracy is about. OK, Carolyn, I'm assuming that you take a very different view on that question. I mean, I think that it's I think it's important to engage with each other in a decent and respectful manner. But I would query whether the law is the way is the way to enforce that. It's good to encourage that. But the law should be reserved um, as a system to create parameters within which we can have discussions and the threshold should be quite high as to what is considered abuse, what is considered bullying, because we've seen in the last years, I would say, that that, that threshold can be quite malleable. Those terms can be malleable. So it's really important to know what we're talking about when we say um, let's prevent abuse, let's prevent bullying. Yes, but yeah. what do those terms Sadly, we've got to leave it there, folks, but thank you very much for your contributions. That was Carolyn Seeley, Legal Officer at the Free Speech Union, and Khalid Mahmood, Labour MP for Birmingham Perry Bar. Thank you very much for your time. Right in the Scotsman this week, the leader of Scottish Labour, Anas Sawa, said that the SNP government has a culture of secrecy and cover-up that's damaging democracy. Quite an extraordinary thing to say. Now, Anas has spoken out many times, of course, against the SNP, but it did make me wonder, is there a problem with transparency and scrutiny across the parties, across democracy in Scotland? Well, 
To take part in my Grilling from Grimes segment this week, I'm joined by Myrtle Fraser, the Conservative MSP for Mid-Scotland and Fife. Myrtle, thank you very much for your company. I guess to, the, to open there, the, the question that needs to be asked is, is the Scottish Government open and transparent enough, in your opinion? Well, thanks, Darren. Nice to be back on the show. And the simple answer to your question is no, it's not. And there's a whole host of great examples recently of where it's gone wrong. The most obvious one, the most famous one at the moment, is around the ferry saga. And for uh, viewers in the rest of the UK who haven't followed this, this is about the procurement of two new ferries to serve um, Scotland's islands, which were commissioned back in 2015, should have been delivered years ago, and are now years late. They were meant to cost £97 million. The total cost is now... £250 million pounds and rising. And it looks like uh, there was a lot of skullduggery involved at the time the contracts were awarded. At that time, the ward, be, the, the, the yard where, where the ferries were being built, belonged to a major SNP supporter uh, called Jim McCall. Uh, the contract was awarded to him despite the fact he was the highest bidder and despite the fact that uh, all the advice SNP ministers got was not to award the contracts uh, to that particular yard. And crucially, the uh, decision note from the Scottish Government explaining why, against advice, uh, they awarded the contract to this yard, Ferguson's, has disappeared. And it seems extraordinary that such a crucial piece of information that would disclose why this decision was taken is not available for the Auditor General in Scotland and for parliamentarians to scrutinise. Uh, and you do wonder uh, what's happened to this crucial piece of evidence. Well, indeed. Uh, last week on the show, we were speaking about the Auditor-General struggling to get answers from the government when trying to locate the documents that you speak of about the delayed ferries on the Clyde. But Nicola Sturgeon, of course, does deny that there is any form of, of cover-up here. Would you go as far as to say that you accuse the Scottish Government of sleaze here? Well, it, it's one of two things. It, it's either corruption, in that it's a deliberate attempt to conceal, or it's gross incompetence. Because it is impossible to believe that experienced civil servants did not properly record this decision. And if that note now cannot be found, it is an astonishing piece of incompetence uh, that uh, record-keeping in the Scottish Government is so poor. But of course, this is just one example. There are a whole host of other examples I could quote. Right now, there's, there's a, a lot of questions around uh, a £500 million guarantee that was issued by the Scottish Government uh, to support uh, the, uh, the, the steel tycoon uh, Sanjeev Gupta's uh, purchase of the aluminium smelter and hydroelectric scheme at Fort William in the Highlands a number of years ago, backed by Scottish Government guarantees. Of course, we know there are serious issues about that steel company. A lot of questions are being asked about why the Scottish Government provided those guarantees at the time and what is the extent of these guarantees. And again, we're being told that that documentation cannot be made available. Right. This, this, this avoid scrutiny by the Auditor General and by Parliament, legitimate scrutiny around public money being spent by the SNP. 
Well, Myrtle, you've just raised a very important line there, a very important phrase. This is taxpayer cash that we're speaking about, right? So when we read in the Herald, for example, that public finance auditors are saying there might need to be a further probe into why ministers actually took on the financial risk. Actually, we're saying ministers took on the financial risk. It's not ministers taking on the financial risk. It's Scotland's taxpayers taking on the financial risk here. Do you think, Murdo, that this is going to create a further headache for the Scottish government? Will we start to see more scrutiny on this very issue? Yes, we will. Already the uh, Public Audit Committee in the Scottish Parliament is holding an inquiry uh, into this. There have been calls for other inquiries. Uh, I noticed writing in The Scotsman this week, Kenny McCaskill, uh, who is the Member of Parliament for uh, East Lothian and a former Scottish Government Minister himself, has been calling for a public inquiry uh, into the ferry scandal. So we'll see more and more pressure, I think, being heaped upon uh, the SNP government. And I think, in many ways, this is a, a symptom of the fact that here you have a party who have been in office for 15 years, and I think they have become tired and complacent and arrogant, and they've, they've come to believe that, uh, having been in power so long, they are untouchable, and they can do anything they like, and nobody will care. And I think that attitude is starting to come back to haunt them. Well, indeed, it's a very interesting time to be following Scottish politics. And I am personally, Murdo, really glad to start to see some scrutiny and debate because I think all too often the press take their eyes off of Scotland when there are very real and serious issues that need that, that scrutiny because, of course, sunlight is the best disinfectant as far as democracy is concerned, wouldn't you say, Murdo? Yes, absolutely. And there's a, there's a very uh, tried and tested tactic that Nicola Sturgeon deploys, particularly when she's being interviewed by you know, UK-based broadcasters, which is to, to pivot away from talking about what's happening in Scotland to make criticisms of uh, the UK Prime Minister and the UK government. And there isn't enough scrutiny, I think, of her and her government. A government, as I said, that's been in power for 15 years, that has a, a litany of failures, not just wasting public money, failures in, in the economy, failures in education, failures in, in the NHS, failures in delivering infrastructure. And the more uh, we can see those in the media, like yourself, shining a light on the SNP's record in government, uh, the more uh, I think people are going to realise that after 15 years, they really haven't made Scotland a better place. Murdo, of course, if we speak of criticisms of the UK Prime Minister, the leader of your party, Douglas Ross, is still back in Boris Johnson, is he, as, as being fit for office, because he was quite critical not too long ago of the British Prime Minister. Yes, he was. And, and to be honest, I think he was right to do that at the time. I mean, there was a real public anger, uh, I think, at uh, some of the events uh, that took place in Downing Street uh, and the Prime Minister's involvement in that. Uh, and that level of concern does continue. I think, I think two things have changed, I think, over the last few weeks. First of all, I think we've seen more and more evidence that it wasn't just Boris Johnson who was potentially involved in rule-breaking. We're now seeing other uh, uh, party leaders, uh, including uh, the leader of the opposition in Westminster, you know, having questions asked about his own behaviour. We've even seen, of course, Scotland's First Minister, Nicola Sturgeon, being questioned by the police two weeks ago for breaking her own rules and not wearing a face mask 
indoors when she should have been. So I think I think the waters have been a bit muddied. But perhaps more crucially, I think there is a recognition by Douglas that given the very serious international situation that we are in, now is not the time to be pushing uh, for a change in uh, leadership of the Conservative Party and creating a vacancy for a Prime Minister. Uh, and the person who would benefit from that right at the moment would be Vladimir Putin. So uh, I, don't think, I don't think Boris Johnson is entirely in the clear, if I'm honest. I think he's still got questions to ask. But now is not the right time to okay. be pushing for a change. But when, as a member of the Scottish electorate, were you to, to look across at, at what Westminster is getting up to, you've got the Scottish government there, would you not see the Scottish government as a safe haven when Westminster is facing accusations of misogyny? You've got MPs watching porn in the Commons. You've got a senior Labour MP being suspended for bullying. Isn't there a deep-rooted cultural issue at the very heart of power within the United Kingdom? Wouldn't it be safer for the Scottish electorate to actually have that power reside instead in Holyrood? I think, I think that's a really serious question. And I think, I think you know, SNP strategists, you know, like to portray Scottish politics as somehow being morally superior uh, to, to, to Westminster. And, and they will be looking at what's happening in the, you know, allegations against Neil Parrish at the moment and saying, doesn't that just prove that, you know, Scotland could do better? Uh, the, the counter to that comes in, in two parts, I think. First of all, the SNP themselves in Westminster uh, are not without their issues. We currently have two uh, SNP MPs who have been found guilty of sexual harassment of staff. So they can hardly claim to be uh, morally upright compared to what's been happening elsewhere. But even within the Scottish Parliament, we've seen within the SNP ranks uh, a number of uh, uh, serious issues develop. The, the former uh, finance minister in the Scottish Parliament, Derek Mackay, had to resign after he was found to be uh, sending inappropriate messages to a 16-year-old boy. Um, we saw another uh, former government minister in Scotland, Mark MacDonald, having to resign after being involved in, in sending uh, inappropriate messages to, to uh, a, a younger woman. So the SNP have no monopoly. So on, those in glass uh, houses basically uh, you know, murder should stones. Exactly. That's exactly the point. They're, they're in a very shiny glass house themselves. <laughs> All right. Myrtle Fraser, Conservative MSP for Mid-Scotland and Fife. Thank you very much for your time. Now, folks, we've had some breaking news from our news desk. Elitha Guffrey has the latest. Thank you, Darren. Well, in the last few minutes, the MP accused of watching pornography in the Commons will resign. We're expecting a statement from his local Conservative Association. Neil Parrish had previously rejected calls to stand down, saying he'd wait for the outcome of a parliamentary standards inquiry. Well, Caroline Noakes, who chairs the Women and Equalities Committee, accused the whips of dither and delay by taking too long to suspend him. This is a breaking story, and we will be bringing you more as we get it. There's Caroline Noakes there. She'd been calling for him to resign. We will bring you more of that as we get it. But in the meantime, let's go back to Darren. Thank you for that update, Olivia. I'm joined now by David Maddox, who is political editor of The Express. 
David, what do you make of this news? Do you think he's going of his own accord or has he actually been pushed here to leave Parliament? Uh, I would imagine it's a bit of both. Uh, there was no way back once he was named and shamed as the, you know, the MP watching porn in the Commons chamber. Uh, you know, his, his reputation was shot from there on. Uh, you know, there may well have been an investigation which could have partially cleared him, but uh, it's one of those things that politically there's no way back from. And, you know, it's, it's better that he resigns on his own terms. I mean, David, you've, we're seeing a sort of litany of, of allegations of it might be bullying, it might be harassment, it might be watching pornography in the House of Commons. And people must be absolutely exasperated watching this show at home and thinking, just what on earth have we done to deserve such parliamentarians? Well, imagine working in the middle of it. It's, uh, it's amazing. I, I'm old enough to, and ancient enough to remember John Major's government uh, going under under a, a vast pile of sleaze in the 1990s. And it's beginning to get that feel to it, I have to be frank. Uh, you know, the party gate stuff doesn't help. The issues uh, which really haven't been talked about too much yet, but the issues around COVID contracts uh, are set to become a kind of big financial issue of, of potential corruption. Uh, yeah, bullying, watching porn. Sexual harassment, as I was watching your interview with Murdo, a class act, by the way, from my old Scotsman days. Uh, but, you know, there are, you know, lots of lots of uh, problems in, in Westminster. And, you know, it's not just actually Conservatives, it's Labour as well with the bullying, it's SNP. We still don't know what's going to happen to Keir Starmer regarding potential fines over lockdown breaks. And then... You know, as, as Murdo was saying, if you go up to Holyrood, uh, some of the things which happen up there are absolutely eye-opening. And it's, I was actually glad to see you're putting a light on that too. Indeed. Well, I mean, David, it's, it's safe to say, I think, that this goes across the political spectrum, doesn't it? It doesn't strike mm. me that this is limited to, to one party. We've got accusations against several. But what do you think's next for, for Neil Parish MP? Because he's a former member of the European Parliament. He was there for quite a while. He's, of course, been in Parliament in the House of Commons for quite some time. He must have quite the canny pension to retire on. <laughs> well, if they've all got a nice pension to retire on, then, uh, of course, he'll get a nice little payoff to help close his offices and so forth. And uh, I think Neil... Parrish has his farm as well, which I would imagine he'll be spending a lot more time on. Uh, it'd be, uh, of course, he was chairman of, uh, he still is technically chairman of the DEFRA committee in the Commons. But uh, yes, uh, if uh, if I were Neil Parrish, though, I would be keeping my head down as much as possible and uh, a, a period of uh, a lengthy period of silence would probably help him a lot. Indeed. Do you think that this goes to the very heart of that cultural problem with the state of politics towards women? Because there have been conversations about whether or not we need legislation to actually criminalise misogyny, for example. Do you think there is a deep-rooted problem in perhaps politics, but also wider society when it comes to the treatment of women? Are we going to see more parliamentarians actually pushing this narrative? I'm sure we will. Uh, there's always a danger with these events that people overreact. 
And uh, whilst obviously, you know, uh, issues like watching porn in the Commons are serious and not to be taken lightly, that doesn't mean that we need a new law to kind of clamp down on people. Uh, I mean, Neil Parrish is paying for it with his job, with his career, uh, uh, quite rightly so. Um, so, you know, there's always a kind of knee-jerk reaction to go for legislation. I actually think that the, in terms of misogyny, uh, an awful lot of the political discourse has actually improved hugely. Even in my time in Westminster, I started in 2010 in Parliament covering uh, debates. So it's, it's improved a lot, even in that time. Where the real problem lies is actually in social media and yeah. uh, the treatment of especially female politicians on social media is uh, abominable, frankly. Well, we've been talking about that quite a bit today, but David Maddox, political editor of The Express Online, thank you very much for your time. Let's go back to Murdo Fraser, the Conservative MSP for Mid-Scotland and Fife, who kindly still joins us now. Murdo, what's your reaction to this? I mean, you had Neil Parrish's wife, Sue, reportedly saying in the press that if you were mad with every man who looked at pornography, you would not have many wives in the world. I mean, that's quite an extraordinary thing to say, isn't it? This is the elected chamber of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Of course, people shouldn't be watching porn within that chamber. Yeah, I, I somehow doubt Mrs Fraser would be quite so forgiving if, if it was me who was um, caught doing that. Um, I, think, I think there's a world of difference between people watching porn in their, in their private time, in their private residences, and watching it in a workplace. And I think watching porn in a workplace for anyone probably is a resigning matter. Watching in the, in the Chamber of the House of Commons is frankly unbelievable behaviour. Uh, I'm not surprised Neil Parrish has resigned. I think absolutely it was the right thing for him to do. Uh, there did, did seem to be some suggestion uh, for, for a short time. He was trying to suggest that this was... Um, he, he, was you know, he was seen watching it by accident. Uh, it seems that that's not the case. So he has... He has owned up to it and absolutely right, the right thing to do uh, to, to go. And I'm sure if he hadn't fallen on his sword, uh, action would have been taken very quickly to have him um, removed if, from, from the Commons if that were possible. Now, purely on a political basis, this must be pretty damning for the Conservative Party ahead of some important elections. Are the Tory party, with this reputation it seems to be gathering, um, David Maddox there from The Express talking about harking back to the, the 90s with John Major's government being accused of being a party of sleaze. Do you think that this is symptomatic of a party that has totally lost its way, Murdo? No, I don't think that's fair, Darren. I mean, it's, it, certainly stories like this are not helpful when there are local elections coming up in a few days' time. But the point that you were making in your conversation with David Maddox a few moments ago, I think, is a very relevant one, which is that this cuts across all political parties, and it cuts across not just Westminster, it cuts across the Scottish Parliament, and I'm sure it cuts across other uh, devolved administrations across the United Kingdom. Uh, I think what the public do have a right to see is those who have the uh, honour and privilege of being elected to represent the people behaving in such a way as respects uh, the fact that it is an honour and a privilege to be uh, elected to represent people. And I think across all parties, all those elect elected to office do have to reflect uh, upon their own 
behaviour. And I think there is an issue too about the way that uh, parliamentarians treat each other. There's an issue around social media, as, as David Maddox was saying. Uh, I think it's incumbent on everyone involved in politics to think about how we collectively raise our game. Murdo, I appreciate you sticking on the line there and giving up your time. That's Murdo Fraser, MSP. Cheers very much. It's time to talk about Durham University. It's been all over the papers this week, but it's distanced itself from reports, from suggestions that mandatory anti-racism training is taking place at one of its campuses. They have said that the provision of this training was not a university or college initiative, but was taken by the student-led junior common room at John Snow College. The training is delivered by Durham People of Colour Association, an association of Durham Students' Union. Anti-racism training can help to create a more respectful environment, but attendance is at the discretion of individual students. Well, joining me to discuss this is Samantha Smith, who's a journalist and a Conservative commentator at Durham University. Samantha, I'm assuming you haven't signed yourself up for this training, have you? Safe to say I haven't. What do you make that, of it all then? Is this, is this really as open to the discretion of students as we might think? Or are students feeling compelled to join this sort of thing? Well, I think that it's frankly laughable that the university is trying to distance itself and say that it wasn't a university or college-wide initiative when the JCR is at the behest of Central University and at the, at the behest of the college. That email would have never been sent out if the principal of John Snow College hadn't given it the go-ahead. And the fact that in the email it was phrased as a way to ensure a safer community for people of colour. I'm mixed race. I'm a student at Durham. My mum's Afro-Hispanic and my father's white. And I've never felt oppressed or discriminated against at the hands of my white peers. Frankly, it's, it's, in, it's infantilizing students and suggesting that they are all a bunch of racists and bigots and that they're not capable of knowing the basic principles of moral decency. When realistically, if you're smart enough to get into Durham, you're smart enough to know the difference between racism and normal human behavior. Well, Samantha, this is exactly the problem, isn't it? I mean, Durham University, and God bless the city of Durham, as you know, it's a city close to my heart, but Durham University is supposed to be one of the most august institutions that this nation has produced. Why? Why is it the case that they seem to be of the view, or at least some activists within Durham University itself seem to be of the view that it's rife with racism? Have you experienced racism at Durham University? Absolutely not. As I said, I've experienced my fair share of racism as a mixed race person, but none of that has ever been at Durham. We're seeing it with many of our venerable institutions nowadays, the Church of England, Oxford University, Cambridge, Durham, where these bastions of free speech or once bastions of free speech are now at the behest of left-wing students, left-wing pressure groups, and feel the need to apologise and vacillate over things like critical race theory, anti-white indoctrination, anti-racism training, when realistically the students and the student body don't need this, we don't want it, and we're not going to attend it. I was speaking to the education minister yesterday about it, and he said, he summed it up perfectly, we should be teaching students how to think, not what to think. Prejudice should be left at home, and that includes at university. Students are paying a damn sight more than they used to in the 1970s. We're paying almost 10000 a year, plus 8000 a year in 
in accommodation fees to be told that we're racist and bigots. I don't think so. Well, indeed. I mean, Samantha, the Durham People of Colour Association, an association of the Durham Student Union, they might well argue that actually the problem is that this, there isn't this anti-racism training that helps to create a more respectful environment, a more inclusive environment. Aren't the likes of you and I, Samantha, who argue that seeing everything through the lens of identity is the problem, actually at fault here? <laughs> It's like I've said it once and I'll say say it again. If you're smart enough to get into Durham, you're smart enough to know the basic principles of moral decency. You're smart enough to know not to be a racist. And if I had experienced incredible racism while I had been at Durham, I'm at one of the oldest colleges in Durham. I'm at Hatfield and I absolutely love it there. By all accounts and purposes, if I was going to experience racism anywhere, it would be at Hatfield and it would be at Durham. But I haven't because there isn't a racism problem at Durham. We don't need anti-racism training and my white peers are not a bunch of racists and bigots. Do you worry about the impact of talking, focusing, as I say, focusing through on everything through that lens of, of race, viewing everything by a person's immutable characteristics, that actually we're, we're telling a, a new generation, the next generation of young people, that British society is one in which you will experience discrimination, you will experience intolerance, when actually all the polls seem to suggest, Samantha, that Britain is a pretty great place to be. You know, if you are born here, you have won the lottery of life. Is that a story that you wish we championed more instead of focusing on these types of classes and activism? You're exactly right, Darren. There's a reason why there are so many immigrants and so much immigration coming into the UK, because we are a we are a country that is welcoming to those of different backgrounds. We're a melting pot of diversity and we celebrate our differences as well as our similarities. We're bonded by more than our skin colour. And the problem that I face and other ethnic minority individuals like me, young people who are growing up in 21st century, the era of council culture, is that we are being told that we are going to be disadvantaged and inherently disadvantaged because of our skin colour, that we cannot succeed unless doors are opened to us because of our skin colour, and that we are somehow uh, we are somehow different to everyone else. We're different to our white peers. We're different to our white teachers. We are not the same because we have more melanin. It's it's outrageous. There's mm. nothing to suggest that that people like me, that people like my mother who emigrated in here into the UK from a third world country in the 1990s, that we cannot succeed. If there was inherent racism at Durham, students like myself from working class backgrounds, from care experience backgrounds, from ethnic minority backgrounds, I wouldn't be at Durham if there was a racism problem. And I would not be loving it and thriving as much as I am. And in our society, we need to be encouraging young people to look past the barriers of skin colour, of gender, of socioeconomic background, and see that, yes, I can succeed no matter, no matter what my mutable characteristics are, rather than wanting them to define themselves by those. Well, indeed. Um, Samantha Smith, well said. Columnist and Conservative commentator Samantha Smith there, offering her view from Durham University. Now, folks, the time is 3.40 and it's time for here some real voices. My favourite part of the show, plenty of you have been sending in thoughts on Elon Musk's takeover of Twitter. Let's hear from Christian Keith and Bob. Christian and Guildford here first. I think Elon Musk's acquisition of Twitter is to be warmly welcomed, 
For far too long now, Twitter has taken it upon itself to be judge, jury and executioner over what constitutes acceptable free speech online. And no surprise is there that that tends to be to the detriment of people with right of centre views. And that's got to stop. It's absurd to think that Donald J. Trump, a former president of the United States, is not on Twitter. And yet the Taliban, responsible for so many atrocities in Afghanistan, are on Twitter. And it just goes to show the extent to which Twitter has lost its way in recent years. So I'm very hopeful that Elon Musk will be able to uh, put things right. So Elon Musk is taking over Twitter. Good. He says he'll promote freedom of speech. Good. Let's hope he challenges the war brigade. Let's hear both sides of the story instead of a mono-narrative. Reinstate Donald Trump and prevent terrorist recruitment. If he does that, I'm sure people will be behind him. And I just hope that the takeover by Elon Musk will create a situation where people can debate healthily about differences of opinion. Uh, it seems to me that that was, was what Twitter was originally set up to be. One of those platforms that you could have a conversation debate a particular issue. Uh, unfortunately, it's turned into something draconian, almost uh, dystopian, uh, it would seem. Like I say, I've never used it. Um, I may consider using it now that Elon Musk is going to be uh, running the thing. It would seem to be a, a good idea to have that sort of a platform. Fascinating views there from Keith in Newcastle, Christian in Guildford and Bob in Sheffield. Seven in ten young people now, folks, attend, should attend university in order to help boost the economy. So that's what was recently said by former Labour Prime Minister Tony Blair, if you remember him. Now, I joining me for the Today's Campus Clash to discuss this very topic is Adam Wildsmith, who is a journalism, media and culture student at Newcastle University, and Nina Skinner, a social policy and politics student at Bristol University. Adam, thank you very much for your time today. I'll start with you. Why should seven out of ten young people go to university? Isn't this just a blatant abuse of taxpayer cash on these Disney degrees? No, I don't think so. What the uh, report shows is that um, if we don't increase enrolment in higher education to about 60 or 70 percent, by the end of this decade or next, then by about the 2030s or 40s, there could be a shortfall in high-skilled workers of about 3 million. Likewise, what they show is that there could be about 3 million too many low-skilled workers, so about 5 million low-skilled workers and only about 2 million low-skilled jobs. Um, so it really shows it's imperative that higher education enrollment is increased if we don't want people to be either overqualified or underqualified for the jobs of the future. Now, Nina, I don't know about you, but I've heard time and again that, that not having a degree precludes you from being a well-informed, intellectually capable member of society. I personally think that that's embarrassing guff from very snobbish and sneering elites. But, Nina, why do you disagree that 7 out of 10 people should go to university? Isn't what Adam says there quite right, that actually we need a highly skilled workforce? Well, actually, no, because in 1997, when Tony Blair declared that 50% of people should go to university, he grossly overestimated the rate of increase in high-skilled jobs. 
the, as the number of people going to university has increased, the gap between a graduate salary and a non-graduate salary has decreased, staggeringly so. Logic dictates that as the number of graduates increase, that will only continue to be the case. So there's absolutely no reason to suggest that we need more graduates in the economy. Adam, do you not think the focus should be away from university? Haven't we perhaps focused on this a little bit too much, our obsession with degrees and obtaining degrees, when actually we, we have focused far too little on those who leave school, who want to go straight into work, they might go down the apprentice route, for example. What's wrong with that? Shouldn't we be looking more at economies like Germany, which don't put as much focus on degrees and the obtainment of them as we do in this country? No, I don't think so. I think if you look at the report, what they advocate for is uh, stronger routes for those who don't want to go to university as well. Uh, but when you mention economies like Germany, Germany actually has a uh, enrollment rate in higher education nearer 70%, as does Canada, as does Japan. Uh, and people across the political spectrum have been, have been arguing for this. George Osborne has, uh, George Johnson has, as has Tony Blair, of course. Um, that it's imperative that the higher education enrollment is increased if it's to meet the demands of the future economy. If you're talking about sort of the current economy, then there perhaps might be too many graduates in, in the economy. But if, if you look at the, the future, it's imperative that we get more, more graduates in order to, to fill those high-skilled jobs of the future. Well, Adam, I couldn't agree with you more. I think we have got far too many people with, frankly, useless degrees. There are Mickey Mouse degrees, if you ask me. Who, who actually is of benefit to society that has studied something like, I don't know, gender studies or whatever element of wackery and walkery we've got infiltrating our universities these days, Nina? Yeah, well, I completely agree. Although I will say that it's funny that you mentioned the enrollment rate and not the graduate rate, because Germany has the highest um, dropout rate in the world of approximately 30%. Well, there we are. Um, you've also mentioned the need for more graduates. But as we've seen, the, as universities expand, they expand their provision of Disney degrees, as you quite rightly call them, because it's extremely difficult to recruit science lecturers, uh, you know, in the fields where we actually do need more graduates, such as engineering, because people with those skills can make more money in the private sector. So that means we need to find routes to train engineers and people who we need with technical skills outside of university, because further expansion simply isn't viable. Adam, in a sentence there, if you would, if more and more people go to university, doesn't this actually devalue the degree? Won't you have to get a master's degree, perhaps? And actually, the, the value of that will become decreased as more people seek to get master degrees to try and differentiate themselves to stand out in the labour market? No, I don't think so at all. If you look at the UCAS figures, although the number of people applying to go to university and being accepted has increased over the last 15 years, those being accepted and those wanting to enrol in the so-called Disney degrees, as you call them, or the, the low return subjects, is actually decreasing and has done by about 100,000 over the past 15 years. So I don't think there's anything wrong with wanting to increase the skills level in the economy at all. Nina, what about Tony Blair? Do you reckon he should stay out of public life? Well, I certainly do, especially given that his own son has said that his target was absolutely ridiculous. And uh, that son, Ewan, Ewan Blair, is currently working in a company which aims to subvert that by recruiting tech um, entrepreneurs straight from school. Well, indeed. I mean, I personally, I think folks, far too many are going to university, leaving universities somewhere to the left of Chairman Mao. But there we are. That was Adam, Smith, Adam Wildsmith, a journalism, media and culture at 
Newcastle student and Nina. I've been around politics long enough, folks, to know that the problem with it is that there is a culture of drink, inflated egos and long hours, not institutional sexism, as the Tory MP Caroline Noakes has said. The Conservative Party, of all political parties, with two female leaders of that party, one somewhat more successful than the other, I think it's safe to say, is undoubtedly a testament to the idea that you don't need diversity quotas for women to get ahead. I don't doubt for a second, right, that things may well have been horrific for women in politics in the past. We'll be hearing from Anne Widdicombe, a politician who's been around to perhaps experience some of that. Not just politics in many male-dominated workplaces, I think you could argue that things were pretty awful for women. That's rightly changing. That culture is changing. But I fear that the Conservative Party, with its record of allowing women to get ahead on being the best person for the job, is actually at risk of putting women forward purely because, folks, they happen to have a vagina, right? Basing it entirely around a person's immutable characteristics. The common speaker, Sir Lindsay Hoyle, has called for radical reform to work and practices after a string of, as I say, bullying and sexual misconduct offences involving MPs. That should occur, right? With each passing week these days, the Palace of Westminster accrues more HR issues than Hugh Hefner's Playboy Mansion. But the Conservatives would learn the wrong lessons from this saga were they to agree with party chairman Oliver Dowden, who said that the party must now ensure half of the Conservative MPs returned at the next election are women. Were in replacing Neil Parrish, the MP, quitting after admitting he watched pornography twice in Parliament, were the Tories to decide that the only thing to do now is to create these all-women shortlists? I think, folks, they'd be doing women a disservice. And I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why that is. Suppose you're selected, right, on your immutable characteristics, on being the owner of a vagina or some other arbitrary condition, rather than being the right candidate for the job. In that case, you'll always be thought of as a diversity hire, a tokenistic target or a second best to those who truly deserved the job. That's not the lesson we should be learning from this. Women who care about politics, women who care about their communities, they're just as worthy as a place in Parliament as men. But it has to be, it has to be, a selection based solely on merit. Once the Tories go down this route of box-ticking, of quarters like a pick and mix of X number of MPs that are women, black, brown, gay, trans, or whatever else, then I'm afraid they make themselves just as bad as their political opponents. Political opponents that see us all through the lens of identity, and not, folks, crucially, as the individuals that we all are. Now, folks, as I say, senior MPs have been calling for a drastic overhaul of Westminster. This is after a series of sexual misconduct and bullying claims about politicians. The Speaker of the House, Sir Lindsay Hoyle, 
has said radical action is needed and a review of working practices. In my cultural segment today, I'm asking, how do we fix Parliament? To help me do that, I'm joined, first of all, by Graeme Stringer, Labour MP for Blackley and Broughton, and Anne Widdicombe, former Conservative Party Minister and MEP. Anne, can I start with you, please? Do you think that we actually need quarters to get more women into Parliament? Is that what's needed to actually change the culture of Parliament that way? Absolutely not. Um, and the only thing that upset me about that introduction that you've just done is you're talking as if it's something new. In fact, both major parties have been practising positive discrimination now uh, for a very long time. And indeed, I personally witnessed a selection, personally saw it, um, as long ago uh, as before I left Parliament. So while I was still there, I left in 2010, I actually saw a selection in which the selection committee was told, in terms, not by implication, in terms, you can't select on merit, you've got to have an equal number of men and women on the shortlist, quite regardless of where uh, the women may have come uh, in, the, uh, in the selection process. Um, and so that is positive discrimination. It hasn't improved the quality of Parliament. It hasn't improved the position of women. Uh, and I am a great believer in selection on merit and merit alone, whether we're talking about women or people of ethnic origin or sexuality or anything else. In Parliament, the selection should be solely on merit. So, Anne, you would disagree with Caroline Noakes MP, who is, it's safe to say, no ally of the current government or Prime Minister, but she has actually accused Parliament, of, or at least the Conservative Party, rather, of being institutionally sexist. Yes, and she's also come down on uh, the side of instant uh, justice, uh, not... Uh, accusation followed by investigation followed by judgment, but immediate judgment, you know, immediate dismissal, immediate going. Uh, so I don't have much respect for her thought processes anyway. Graeme, can I come to you now, please? You've been a member of Parliament for a number of years. I won't embarrass you. But these calls for reforms <laughs> in Parliament, for, uh, well, <laughs> for MPs that are facing allegations of sexual misconduct, do you actually think this is necessary? Is this about time? Is it laudable in your view? My party went down the road of all women shortlists, uh, having followed the percentage of women on, on shortlists, because it saw that there was a problem that was uh, a small minority of MPs of all parties who were women. That was a particular problem uh, that uh, we decided needed to be resolved. As far as the Labour Party is concerned, that's now resolved. Men are in a minority in the Parliamentary Labour Party. Uh, and I think we should go back to precisely what Anne said, that uh, selection should be uh, wholly on merit, having solved that uh, original uh, problem. But it was a problem. and just choosing previously, 25, 30 years ago, on merit didn't really deal uh, with that issue. We, we've done that, uh, and I think Parliament is better for it, not necessarily with more able MPs, but it, it feels uh, more representative of the country uh, as a whole. Yeah. I... Incidentally, it hasn't actually solved uh, the problem of 
prejudice, sexism uh, in Parliament. It may or may not have made it uh, worse. That is a, a different factor. It's dealing with whether or not the Commons uh, looks like uh, the whole of the country. Yeah, I mean, I can remember, well, I, I wasn't actually politically aware, we'll say, back in that time, but, you know, it's 25 years on since Tony Blair's government was put into power and the press were waxing lyrical about Blair's babes, right? We've, we've moved on quite some time from those days, haven't we, Anne? Well, let me tell you a story about Blair's babes, which is absolutely true, about six months after they all got in. One of them came up to me in a corridor uh, and said to me, Anne, isn't it horrible how the men are so rude to us? And I said, yes. And isn't it horrible how they're so rude to each other? And she hadn't thought of that. She'd just been roughed up in the chamber. She assumed it was because she was a woman. In fact, it was because she was useless. <laughs> well, Graham, do you think it's moved on in a good way? Sorry, I didn't catch that. Can you say that do, again? Sorry. Do you think it's moved on in the right way? Because you've got the likes of the International Trade Secretary, Anne-Marie Trevelyan, of course, with a pretty harrowing tale of being pinned up against a wall by a, a male MP. These sort of revelations are still coming out now, so some viewers might well be saying, well, it doesn't sound like the culture's there just yet. I think if you listen to what... Uh, people like Anne Taylor, so who was a Labour uh, chief whip from uh, in, in the early part of this century, or, or you read what Shirley Williams has written when she was one of a very small uh, number of women Labour MPs in the 60s and 70s, then things are definitely better. But that doesn't mean uh, that there aren't pretty appalling pieces uh, of atrocious behaviour by some men. And that can be dealt with, really, by, by complaining either through the party system or the new system uh, that's being set up in the Commons. And that is the way that it should be dealt with. The, the, uh, the stuff about watching pornography in the Commons chamber recently is just simply appalling uh, behaviour. Neil Parrish has resigned, which he, he should have done. Uh, but it's a very rare, well, as far as I know, it's a unique uh, occurrence, uh, that. And where there is bad and appalling behaviour, then I think the parties and the Commons have a duty to deal with it. And as Anne said earlier, by due process. Yeah, and a Conservative Party inquiry into the basic instinct row, you know that one about Angela Rayner being found, well, say, alleging, shall we say, the Daily Mail alleged that Angela Rayner was trying to distract the Prime Minister by using her dress. Now, she herself, the Mail are now saying, was the source of the story. Now, we all waxed lyrical this time last week about how this was a sign of misogyny in the House of Commons. This is all a new element. What do you make of it? Well, first of all, there was a complete overreaction. I mean, when Boris talked about unleashing the terrors of the earth, you would think we were talking about high treason. Uh, and then we have the speaker summoning the editor uh, of a national newspaper uh, into his presence. And then it transpires that the origin of this was a joke by Angela herself on the terrace, uh, chatting informally uh, to Tory MPs. And it was a joke. Uh, and if it had been made clear right from the start, 
that it had come from Angela. I don't think anybody would have taken it seriously. But a very distorted version was produced, uh, which appeared to uh, proceed from misogyny rather than a joke from the lady herself. Uh, and uh, Labour took a very long time, I have to say, um, to acknowledge the truth of the matter, just as they have over their own version of Partygate. Uh, and we really cannot have a situation in which the reputation of Parliament is dragged through the mud uh, when actually um, the facts are rather different. And I have no doubt at all that there are individual MPs who behave badly. They always have through time immemorial. But I was in Parliament for 23 years when there weren't very many of us there. Uh, 23 years, I never encountered any bad behaviour uh, other than the very odd, light-hearted comment, which I took to be light-hearted. And I think we're in danger of losing our sense of humour sometimes. Graham, is, is Anne not right that we're at risk here of throwing the, I guess, the meritocratic baby out with the diversity bathwater here, out of a few newspaper reports that have shown to be not, well, they're quite different this week than they were last week, shall we say, around the Angela Rayner story. And, of course, now the coming to light of Neil Parrish, he's gone off his own accord. Do we really need fundamental reform of the whole system? Should we really be tarnishing the entire reputation of our parliamentary system through the, what are essentially a few bad apples? I think, I think the Angela Rayner issue was... Uh, a trivialisation of politics sort of wound up by the mail on on, on Sunday and then uh, both the Prime Minister and my party exaggerated uh, the importance of it. I mean, it, uh, it, it, I'm not sure it was a joke, but it was a trivialisation uh, of politics and we have major international events happening at the present time which are very frightening. We have problems with our own economy. We need to be focused on those, not on how Angela Rayner sits uh, in the House of Commons. Not, it's not a surprise that women have legs, quite, uh, quite frankly. And I think making sure that where there is appalling behaviour, and like Anne, I have seen very few examples in the 25 uh, years I've been in the Commons of uh, bad behaviour. Uh, I'm sure it, it happens from time to time. Then it is up to the parties, it's up to the Commons authorities to deal with it via due process and quickly. Okay. One of the, going, going back to Neil Parrish, one of the uh, sad things, apart from for him and his family, was that if you went on to social media, you had a lot, well, not a lot, two or three uh, MPs who their names being circulated as potentially those MPs who'd been looking at uh, pornography in the Commons Chamber. So being transparent and quick about this and then sorting it out quickly is more important than a complete uh, change of the system. If we change the system, we all it, it happened with MPs' expenses, where there have been people cheating and stealing uh, from the system. We've now ended up with an incredibly bureaucratic and expensive system, which could have been dealt with by complete transparency. Right. Uh, and if we go, as the Speaker, Lindsay Hoyle, I've known he was elected the same day I was, I've 
He represents the seat not far from me. I have great respect for him, support him as Speaker. But we don't need to set up another bureaucratic system that puts okay. MPs in conflict uh, with civil servants who they say, we employ the person for you work, who's working for you. And you say, but I want him or her to do this. And they say, well, you can't. It just puts unnecessary costs and conflict into the system. Thank you, Graeme. Now, I wish I was talking to the two of you about your experiences and the fact that inflation and all these other things are running as high as they are, but unfortunately we're talking about Angela Rayner's legs and Neil Parrish looking at porn. But there we are. That was Graeme Stringer, Labour MP and member of the Foreign Affairs Select Committee and Anne Widdicombe, the former Conservative Party Minister and MEP. <laughs>
that know very well how the nuclear deterrent playbook works. And if Russia was silly, silly enough, if, if Mr. Putin was stupid enough to start threatening us with nuclear weapons, he would be looking at the utter destruction of Russia uh, within, within a period of seconds. I mean, this is, this is no laughing matter. So while Putin has been um, making all kinds of threatening noises about the Russian nuclear arsenal, the point is, it's a zero-sum game for him, and that if, if, he, if he were to move anywhere near using these weapons, uh, he, he would end up with Russia and himself being obliterated. So I personally think the, 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 this is just scaremongering on the part of Putin, who, of course, is losing the war in Ukraine, as you said in your introduction. So he's yeah. sort of thrashing around, looking for ways to, 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 to make himself look big and powerful. But to my mind, this is an empty threat. Well, I certainly hope so. How much have the United Kingdom actually played a role in arming the Ukrainians? And how much of a role have British troops, with the, the expertise of the British Armed Forces, actually played a role in ensuring that the Ukrainians were able to put up as robust a defence of Ukraine as they have done? Well, I think the British Army and others, including the Americans, have been deeply involved. Uh, we've been deeply involved since the invasion of Crimea in 2014. And the fact the Ukrainians were able to muster such a brilliant defence of their capital, Kyiv, um, when the Russians first invaded, so shows just how dramatically their ability to defend themselves has increased since the Crimea invasion in 2014. They've managed to shoot down a lot of Russian aircraft, both fighter jets, uh, transport aircraft and helicopters. They've, they've destroyed um, hundreds of Russian tanks and artillery units and, and other armoured vehicles. And as you said in your introduction, you know, the latest estimates is that in, in excess of about 20,000 Russian soldiers have been killed. Th these are significant losses um, for, for Russia. Th th these losses are greater than they suffered in nearly 10 years of fighting in Afghanistan in the 1980s. So this is a very serious blow for the Russians. And I think a credit to us and the Americans for helping the Ukrainians to train to a level and be equipped to a level where they, they can give the Russians a bloody nose. Yeah. Con, how much... You've, you've been following all of this as the defence editor and chief foreign affairs columnist at the Daily Telegraph. How much do you actually think that it was somewhat naive to assume, as I think many Western nations did, to just say, all right, well, Russia's not a problem anymore? I remember a very famous debate between President Barack Obama and the then contender for the presidency, Mitt Romney, in which President Obama laughed at Mitt Romney for suggesting that Russia was still a threat to the Western nations. How much did the Western world take its eyes off of the ball in an incredibly naive and reckless fashion? Well, there's certainly been a lot of complacency about Russia. Um, and a decade ago, Darren, the, the main focus was on defeating Islamist terrorism. And I remember going to a conference in Washington with the, the chiefs of the American military, and we had a vote, you know, what is the bigger threat, um, Islamic State and Al-Qaeda or Russia? 
and all the military people there voted nine to ten in favor of Russia being the biggest threat. So, I mean, the military stroke security establishment um, in both Washington and here in London have been very much aware of this. But the politicians, I think, have, have felt that if only we sit down and talk with Putin, if we maintain trade ties, then um, that, that would encourage good behavior from Moscow. And of course, uh, German Chancellor Angela Merkel was foremost amongst those advocating this position. And that's where the naiveties come in. Um, and that, that's where the mistakes have been made at a political level. And even here in London, I think the Cameron government, Theresa May, even after the Salisbury poisonings, you know, they, 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 they talk the talk about um, holding Russia to account, but nothing very much was done. The oligarchs con continued to work and operate in London and raise money in London. So I think the political classes on both sides of the Atlantic um, have a lot to answer for. Well, indeed, Con Coughlin, and I hope, you know, I hope that we're going to actually get serious on this, because as you say, the Salisbury poisonings, Russian, Russian agents there, we should have been serious about actually bolstering our defences then. But Con Coughlin, defence editor and chief foreign affairs columnist at The Telegraph, thank you very much for your time and expertise today. <laughs>Now, folks, to close the show, it's time for a campus clash. Was it right for Neil Parrish MP to resign due to watching porn within the chamber of the House of Commons? Sophie Kokoran is a business student at Durham University and Anna McGovern, an English student at Queen Mary University of London. Sophie, can I start with you? What, you're of the view, right, that Neil Parrish shouldn't have stepped down over this. Why is that? Yeah, to be honest, I'm of the view that it is unnecessary. And Anna's about to say in about five minutes, well, you would get sacked for any any other workplace, and you're right. But unfortunately, the bar is so categorically low in the House of Commons that if we have MPs resigning for just watching porn, then, boy, we are going to have no MPs left at this rate. I know for a fact that, that well, to be honest, the, the, the House of Commons is filled by a bunch of degenerates, and there are a lot of MPs that will you know, have sex with their staffers in their offices. And we've got Claudia Webb, the criminal, still sitting there over nearly 200 days since of being convicted for harassment. I mean, the poor, I, you know, it's bad to say it, but it's only in really watching porn, considering what a lot of the other lot have done. We're going to have no MPs left, I don't think. So Anna, Sophie's view there that the Parliament, this is just the way of Parliament operates, right? This is what's become the de facto norm in Parliament. Absolutely not. I could not disagree more with that. Um, I think it's really concerning that we actually have 56 MPs across the House currently under investigation um, for sexual misconduct. And the fact is, he was in the House of Commons in one of the most powerful positions in the country there to represent his constituents just watching porn he gets an 85k salary to do that and you could actually argue that is a form of cyber flashing the fact that he's in one in the house of commons just doing that i think his constituents would be arguing well why is he not paying attention to the debate and actually you know prioritizing the issues that matter to them most so i think that there's a lot of concerns there and also there is absolutely no argument he should have resigned and it's good that he did so Sophie, were you to be were I to be working on a checkout in Tesco, I would rightly lose my job if I was caught watching porn on a 
personal computer or indeed a phone, wouldn't you expect a parliamentarian to be held at an even higher standard than, you know, a, a colleague in Tesco? My question is about this, though, Darren. Is this about watching porn or is this about him not doing his job? Because if this is about watching porn, well, there's nothing wrong, really, with watching porn. Most people in this world watching porn. So is this but moral that's in outrage the workplace, because he was watching though, porn? Or, I agree. Or... Consenting adults can watch pornography until their heart's content. But the issue here is that he was watching it in the workplace in the House of Commons, isn't it? So he he wasn't doing his job. I think this is this is the problem that he was distracted and he wasn't necessarily doing his job. But then is that different to all of the MPs that sit on their phones on Twitter playing Angry Birds, playing Candy Crush, not turning up to debates? Is is that any different, or is this a moral outcry because it is porn? That's that's my question with this. Anna, is this just you being a sort of Mary Whitehouse type figure? You're just being a patrician, and actually the problem here, paternalistic even, and the problem here is that you've got something against porn. Oh, I do have something against porn, but that is not the reason why I'm debating against this. I think the point is, um, Sophie does bring up a good point, that there are MPs just sitting there on their phones, like either playing Candy Crush or Angry Birds. And I'd argue, what, why should they be using their phones in there in the first place? But especially the fact that he watched it twice, um, first claiming that it was an accident, and then actually admitting to doing it deliberately in a moment of madness. It is a completely inappropriate setting to be watching things like that and in any other workplace you would be sacked so it's definitely good that he was gone now. okay folks we're gonna have to leave it there unfortunately but sophie and anna thank you very much for your time today i'm sure all of you at home will have views on that so do tweet me at gb news thanks for listening to real britain the podcast don't forget to subscribe so you'll never miss an episode and if you enjoyed it leave us a comment I'll see you next time for more Real Britain.